Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Wake, awake, for night is flying. The watchmen on the heights are crying. Awake, Jerusalem, arise. Awake, awake, for night is flying. We are approaching the end of the church here. And so in the three-year lectionary, the readings toward that theme begin to predominate. It's the parable of the ten virgins this coming Sunday, according to the three-year lectionary. But are we supposed to look forward to Jesus' return or not? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. Coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We'll be looking forward to Sunday morning with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Then we'll begin a conversation on Christian sanctification in the family, the state, and the church with Dr. Alfonso Espinosa, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Great to be back, Todd. Why does the three-year lectionary kind of drag out the end of the church year? Well, it's counting differently than the church had done it for many years, and maybe it's a good time to talk about that since it's a perpetual question, I guess, among one-year users on how do you end the church year. There's kind of two ways that we find at the beginning of the Reformation that were used by Lutherans. Uh, That's either to kind of run them out till you run out of Sundays, and so you don't 22, 23, and maybe you're done. Others kind of skip to the last Sunday, but their last Sunday would have been, I believe it's 24 or 23. It wouldn't have been what we're used to now, which is Trinity 27, the parable of the virgins, which is the one that we have today as kind of the last Sunday. Some are also familiar with the pattern of jumping to the last three And that is found in the service book and hymnal and comes then into Lutheran worship. And so then you have kind of a mini season almost of end times with the sheep and the goats. Before that, you have just kind of a apocalypse from Jesus. And then you have the 10 virgins at the end. I believe that may have also been in the common service book, but I'm forgetting now. 
And then last of all, you have kind of another tradition that comes about in the 20th century from the Roman Catholic Church. Pope Pius XI in 1925 introduced Christ the King Sunday. He put it on the last Sunday of October, and then later in 1969, it was moved by Paul VI to the last Sunday of the church year always. On that October date, it was introduced, first of all, as kind of a counter-secularism idea that Christ really is ruling the world. We should remember that. I think that's something we probably can agree with. But also it had the extra benefit, I suppose, of being opposite the Reformation celebration at the end of October. So it took on some kind of counter-Reformation tones. In any case, in the three-year lectionary, of which that 1969 shift for the Roman Catholic Church was part, they don't count from the beginning of Trinity's season or the Sundays after Pentecost. They actually count from the end. So the propers that we've been talking about, proper 26, 27 today, actually goes to proper 29, always the last Sunday. So there's two different ways of numbering it. One is how do you identify these readings that we're always talking about? Those are identified as propers, proper 3 through 29. But then how do you number the Sundays, like to put up on your bulletin or on your board? Those you number after Pentecost in the three-year lectionary. So this Sunday that we're going to talk about today is proper 27A, this year, it might happen to be 24th Sunday after Pentecost, but in future years, it might actually be different, all depending on how many Sundays there are in this summer season. Give us an overview of what we're looking forward to in the Gospel reading. Sure. And maybe before we do, just to say the season that we have here at the end of A definitely begins now. Today is going to be the first of the three last Sundays of the of the church year, uh, end of the church year kind of Sundays, and end of the world kind of Sundays. And it, that's because Matthew's gospel that we've been going through has an apocalypse that Jesus talks at length about the end of the world in two parables and, and also in just speaking frankly about how the world will end. So today we're going to have the wise and foolish virgins. Next Sunday we'll have the parable of the talents, which the king returns and seeks the rewards uh, for what people have uh, done with what he's given them. And then the last one will be the sheep and the goats, which in this year will be the last Sunday. The epistles were going through First Thessalonians, and that kind of naturally ends with end times themes appropriate. And the last Sunday varies depending on which year you are. We'll have something from First Corinthians this time. As we look at the gospel reading, we have the parable of the virgins, and we have kind of a key statement from Jesus at the end, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. I think as we look at the whole theme and all of the readings today, I think we have a question at first to answer that the readings really do answer in different ways. Maybe that question is, should we look forward to the last day or not? As we look at the Old Testament reading, I think we'll find out the answer is quite directly no. That's in fact what Amos says. Uh, why are you desiring the day of the Lord? It's going to be darkness and not light. 
And this is because they were despising the Lord's word. They were keeping all his feasts and imagining that they were his holy people because they did all of the religious kind of ceremonies, but they did not keep any love. They did not trust in him. They did not live righteously and trust in his righteousness. They really thought it was all on them. So no, if you are ignoring the Lord's word or resting on your own inherent righteousness, uh, the, the last day is nothing to look forward to. The epistle is going to say, yes, of course, it's something to look forward to. This is the fruition of our hope in Christ Jesus, and it gives us the confidence particularly of the resurrection, which is joyful, especially for those who have lost loved ones. And the gospel is going to say, yes, in this way, that we want to watch, that we want to remain ready at all times for his coming, that we don't want to be the foolish virgins that have neither prepared uh, nor stay at their post when the time comes, uh, but who run off. We want to be like the wise virgins who, whether sleeping or waking, whether uh, always prepared or whether being called to repentance, to return to the Lord, they maintain the singular nature of the mind, uh, that they trust in him, that they want to be found by him, they want to be watchful at all times, and uh, they return to that even if they fall away or fall asleep for a moment. And I think all of that then leads to alter our question for the day and just maybe ask it in this way. What are we looking forward to? And in what sense are we looking forward to the return of Christ Jesus and the end of the world? The intro it is taken from Psalm 84. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Glory be to the Father. So I, I think this is a very interesting choice, this Psalm 84. It's a well-known psalm about the temple of God and his courts. But it's kind of a nice little connection to talk about this I'd rather be a doorkeeper in God's house because that's how we find the virgins. They're waiting at the door. They're waiting to be let in. They're watching and holding out the light so that when the bridegroom comes, they can all enter in with the rest of the guests. Uh, and I think there's something very beautiful here in this phrase that we mostly know the doorkeeper part, or sometimes it's paraphrased elsewhere. It's better to be a servant in heaven than to rule in hell, or maybe the demons say the opposite. But notice, the Lord is a sun and a shield. He bestows both favor and honor. Now think about these virgins. He, he finds, I suppose if he had come right at the hour that they woke when the, the watchman cried out, he would have found some with lamps burning full of oil and they would have saw some that were sputtering and going out. To those who are prepared and those who have done great works, he bestows honor on them. To those who have sins, though, the Lord doesn't cast them away. He bestows favor and grace on them, and he does not withhold his blessings from his people. So I think we want to be like the birds here. We see the great play on images with today's gospel. The birds are gathered around the Lord's door and his temple, his hall. We also want to be gathered, and we want to be wise and remain there. 
And above all, this psalm has a note of delight in everything that it says. It's anticipating the Lord's presence in his house. This is the very same anticipation that we ought to have for Christ Jesus' return at the last day. Our delight and our anticipation of that day is rooted in our delight and anticipation of Christ himself. And remember maybe the broader context of Jesus' apocalypse and all of his kind of end times teaching in the Gospels. It's almost always connected to the temple itself. Somebody makes a comment about how great this temple is, how beautiful the stones are. Thinking of that makes you think, are you going to restore the whole kingdom now, Lord? And that's when the Lord brings up two points. One, that the temple, in fact, is going to be destroyed in 70 AD, just 40 years after that. And he seems relatively unimpressed with the temple's prowess. But above all, it's that we would realize He's not interested in that temple because the true temple is his body that's going to be torn down and rebuilt in three days, the charge that finally stuck on the Lord Jesus. And so I think it's a wonderful connection then to bring Psalm 84 about the temple of the Lord and to apply it to Christ Jesus and his return. This is the kind of waiting and anticipation that we have, not for an earthly building, but for the eternal city that will come with Christ and his return for judgment. How does the collect read? Lord God, Heavenly Father, send forth your Son to lead home his bride, the church, that with all the company of the redeemed we may finally enter into his eternal wedding feast through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. So this collect has been written especially with that last Sunday in mind. In fact, it's used also in the one-year lectionary for this reading of the Gospel of the Foolish and Wise Virgins, which is always the last Sunday in that lectionary. Here, it's just kept connected with its Gospel reading. But we should say it doesn't quite match up with the with the reading that we have. We see a company of all the blessed, and we also see the bride herself being led in. That's always the image of the church from Ephesians. I think this collect is much more drawn from our hymn of the day, Wake, Awake, for Night is Flying, than it is even directly from this gospel or from all of the readings today. It really is drawn from that hymn that looks at this and says, no, we are not going to enter as mere bridesmaids, uh, but we are going to be the very bride of Christ herself, the church of God. And so we have a, a great confluence, really, of wedding feast images brought together here. All of the banquets that the king has thrown and invited people, which we heard earlier this year. Here, this coming groom to which bridemaids are attending and waiting for him, as well as all of what Ephesians says about the bride of Christ, what Revelation says about the, the city Jerusalem, New Jerusalem coming down, adorned as a bride for her husband. It's quite appropriate to see that all of these are pointing to the presence of God, eternal life that comes with the last days, that is most often characterized as a feast, which we already are rejoicing in, in the Lord's Supper and in all his gifts of the word and the sacraments. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He is walking us through the Proppers for this coming Sunday, according to the three-year lectionary, and we will get to the Old Testament reading in Amos next. How can conspiracy theories become a form of idolatry? 
I've written a column for the latest issues, etc., a journal titled, Yes, Elvis is Dead, But God is in His Heaven, a pastoral response to conspiracy theories. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Julie Stegemeyer writes about her path from Methodism to Lutheranism. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. In the mid-19th century, German immigrants boarded ships to cross the Atlantic Ocean for a new land called America. Opportunity, unknown challenges, and preserving their Lutheran heritage awaited them after their months-long journey. Learn more about the humble beginnings of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in the latest issue of Interest Time. Visit interesttime.org to request your free copy. Grace, Faith, Scripture, and Christ Alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. Risen Savior Lutheran Church, Baser, Kansas. Located just right outside the northwest corner of the metro Kansas City area, We have a growing congregation of people who come from over 13 different communities to see what God is doing here, who desire to only believe, teach, confess, and practice as the church always has. Risen Savior, Baser, Kansas. Check out our website, risensaviorlcms.org. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Folks, as we approach Veterans Day, let's remember to give thanks for the vocation of military chaplains. Lutheran Church Missouri Synod chaplains deliver word and sacrament ministry to our military personnel and their families. Learn more about their service at lcms.org slash armed forces, lcms.org slash armed forces. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lecture with Pastor Sean Denzer. Sean, the Old Testament reading comes from Amos 5, beginning at the 18th verse. Yes, and uh, the Roman Catholic Church, as well as the Revised Common Lectionary, interestingly enough, gives wisdom. That's an apocryphal book. Chapter 6 is an alternate. But we'll look here at Amos, chapter 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into a house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So we have kind of two parts. The prophet is speaking the message of the Lord, and then we have the Lord burst in with this, I hate and despise your feasts statement. And I think 
out of its context, this just seems very strange to me. Why would you begin an end time season saying, don't even look forward to the day of the Lord? And how does that match at all with the gospel reading that says, actually, we should be looking forward to it. We should always be ready and watchful for it. The context of Amos is an Israel that is carrying on with all the motions that is glorious, perhaps, in its temple service, with many great sacrifices being offered, and lots of songs and music, and all of the right ceremonies, but none of the faith in the heart, and none of the works of love with the hands that flow from that faith. That's what's kind of captured entirely in this word justice and righteousness, that those who truly believe in the Lord, who aren't simply going through the motions or keeping the ceremonies or tithing the dill and mint and cumin, as the Lord says elsewhere when he accuses the Pharisees, but neglecting all of the weightier matters of the law, which the Ten Commandments lay out quite clearly, such people are not pleasing to the Lord. We have this very same theme in Psalm 50, by the way, where God says an amazing thing. He says, I don't want your sacrifices. The cattle on a thousand hills are mine. If I was hungry, if that's what the sacrifices really meant, I wouldn't even tell you. I could get it myself. And then he says, you know, do justice, do good works, trust in me with all your heart and believe in me and live in love toward your neighbor that cares for the widow and the sojourner, the poor, the needy, that doesn't cheat people. What is in accord with the second table of the law? Because we've taken the first table of the law to heart. So that then is why the picture of the last day is first of all painted very darkly. And to say, if you are expecting the last day to just basically be the Lord stopping by to say, wow, I'm pretty impressed, guys. Let me come pat you on the back for uh, keeping the temple going and being a pretty uh, successful nation. Forget about it. I think that verse 19 is a fairly dramatic uh, statement, right? As if you were fleeing from a lion, that's bad enough. And then a bear comes and gets you instead. You weren't expecting it. And I think that's the part that definitely does tie in with our gospel reading. If we're going to be watchful at all times, we're not going to be caught unawares. What is the attitude and, and disposition of our watchfulness? It's not just going through the motions, making sure that all of the uh, technically we're ticking the boxes, but we want hearts that are devoted to Christ Jesus and then a life that's devoted to Christ Jesus. It's a startling thing that the Lord says, I hate your feasts, but it's because the doing of these things is not a merit or a credit to ourselves in and of itself. The feasts that the Lord established, the sacrifices, all of the Old Testament temple service is for the sake of meeting with his people, going forth with his love and begetting that kind of neighborly love in them also. So to make offerings with no corresponding faith or life is really to reject the Lord. And thus they're the inverse, right? They become a curse to them. And uh, in fact, to continue them is a blasphemous thing. This happens also, by the way, whenever we try to bless things that are profane among us and just kind of maybe say a prayer or do something that seems kind of holy and pious to cover that up. And that's, that's rotten, to have a rotten core, but you just kind of threw a blanket of ceremony over it. This doesn't please the Lord. That's not what he's looking for, kind of lip service. He wants heart service, and he wants that actually to be concrete in love for the neighbor. So all of this is, is what gives us this kind of harsh beginning to this day from Amos.
The psalm for this coming Sunday is Psalm 70. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be put to shame and confusion who seek my life. Let them be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let them turn back because of their shame who say, Aha, aha. May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say evermore, God is great. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. That last verse is very clear with the gospel reading. Don't delay. Don't uh, tarry as the Lord does. This psalm choice of Psalm 70 strikes me very much as a seasonal choice rather than maybe a commentary on the Old Testament reading as we usually have. The Roman Catholic Church, interestingly, has Psalm 63 as their choice. It talks about the Lord being sought and seen in his sanctuary, that we treasure it because his loving kindness, his steadfast love is better than life. I think that's an interesting contrast where what is the aspect of the temple that is desirable, right? We want to be a doorkeeper hanging out by the temple in our intro. We hear all of these sacrifices going on that the Lord says, is able to say, I'm not interested in your sacrifices. Well, what is the purpose of the sacrifices? That they display the Lord's steadfast love, and then we in turn trust in it. We have kind of the effect of that then, and that's why I say it's more seasonal for the end times, where it's essentially the prayer that we find in Revelation, Maranatha, Maranatha, it's sometimes pronounced, which means, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We have that in our Advent prayers. We have it even in our table prayer. But that's what we hear here. Make haste, O God, to deliver me and to help me, uh, to rescue me. Don't delay. Be my deliverer. Arise for my aid. And this is a prayer for the Lord's return, for his attention to be given to us again. And it's prayed in eagerness by those who are afflicted. We have this little sentence from uh, the first verse of Psalm 70 in so many of our services. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. It's so well known to us that I think if, if a pastor were to start the first part, everybody would jump right in with the second part. And that's absolutely fantastic. It's sort of the Psalms version of expanding on the simplest of all prayers, Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy on us. Lord, help me. Make haste to deliver me. There's an urgency here, and, and that's an urgency that we usually associate with Advent, but here we're also connecting with the end of the church here and the end of the world as well. We will get into the epistle reading for this coming Sunday with Pastor Sean Denzer after the break. week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our study of the book of beginnings, Genesis, with Enosh to Enoch, Methuselah to Noah, corruption increasing, God speaks to Noah, and God's covenant with Noah foretold. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org 
or by calling Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Faith that shines in the culture, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Old theology, new technology. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by becoming an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. Bethany Lutheran, Fairview Heights, Illinois. Emmaus Lutheran, South Bend, Indiana. Grace Lutheran, Rochester, Minnesota. Emmanuel Lutheran, Manchester, New Hampshire. Mount Calvary Lutheran, Brookings, South Dakota. Peace Lutheran, Glidden, Iowa. Reformation Lutheran, Hillsboro, Oregon. St. John Lutheran, Strongsville, Ohio. St. Paul Lutheran, Unionville, Michigan. And Trinity Lutheran, Valonia, Indiana. Find out how your confessional Lutheran church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Just go to issuesetc.org, click Support, Donate, and print a one-page flyer. When your congregation becomes an Issues Etc. sponsor, We'll publicize your church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. Journal. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning. According to the three-year lectionary, Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. Sean, the epistle reading is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Todd, in my mind, this is the key end times explainer text in the scriptures both to give us what our attitude is to be toward the last day and to give us all the chronology. It seems that there's always room for misinformation and misunderstanding about the end of the world. Revelation that comes at the end of the Bible is always assumed to be about the end of the world. It is called the apocalypse after all, and it's notoriously 
difficult to interpret. It is figurative language, just like we see our Lord giving his apocalypse figuratively as well. And there's just always come in confusion about this. Paul was dealing with this, and that's why he writes these letters. There were some that he had taught that believed the resurrection had already happened, and they missed it. There were others who thought, well, the Lord is still coming. His coming is going to be imminent. We need to be watchful at all times. But what do we do about those who have died in the faith? What Paul says here, though, remains really foundational for our understanding of death, of the resurrection of what happens on the last day and what our confident hope is to be in Christ Jesus. And it does clear away misunderstanding. Maybe that's the first thing to notice. Paul thinks knowing things as Christians is important. It's so common that we want to divide head knowledge from heart knowledge, or we want to separate knowing the teaching of God and the teaching of his word from the believing and and loving and caring and working of righteousness uh, to those around us. The Bible definitely doesn't put that kind of divider in there. And so I think you can see here, Paul thinks knowledge, clarity of understanding is actually what will comfort those who grieve and what will enable them to grieve as those who have confidence and hope, grieve in a God-pleasing manner which is what makes this so rich for funerals, right? We notice that Paul says we can grieve. He doesn't say like a stoic would, why are you crying? This is natural. This is normal. Everybody dies. It's foolish to carry on about it. No, he says we may grieve, but he also distinguishes Christian grief from the grief of others. And that is that our unique grief is that we grieve in hope. It's not just a fill of empty philosophy. We're not here to come up with our own conclusions of why we can get over this death or something. We have a unique hope. And then he spells out what the hope is. The hope is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. That belief, that knowledge, and that faith together is comforting to us. So Christ has died. What is comforting about that? We know that he has shed his blood for the full remission of our sins, that he has given us a clean conscience before God, that he has peace by the blood of his cross. All of that is there in his death. Also that he has risen from the dead. And maybe we should say, even before we talk about the resurrection's unique comfort, just the fact that our Lord and our God and our Savior has himself died ought to show us why the Psalms say, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. If we are disciples and followers of Christ Jesus, death is not an aberration or a strange thing. It might actually be necessary to follow him. He's gone there first, but all the more he is risen from the dead, which gives us the confidence of our own resurrection itself. Death has been defeated. And all of that is wrapped up in this phrase that Paul kind of says twice as if we're supposed to know what it means, fallen asleep. This is now a new term that Christians may use rightly. It's not a euphemism, but it is what death has become. It's, it comes from Jesus when he says to the little girl, I say to you, arise. And he tells everybody else, oh, she's only sleeping. I just have to raise her as if she were just in a, taking a nap. This is the way death has become since we've seen Christ come out of the tomb. Therefore, that gives us comfort. That gives us hope. We expect that death will not be permanent. Death will be asleep from which Jesus is able to rouse us. So faith believes this. It hopes it with certainty that through the power of these two things, his death and resurrection, God is going to bring us along with Jesus 
after him on his path and raise us to eternal life. As Jesus says in John's gospel so many times, and I will raise you up on the last day. These in my reading really are the words that Paul mentions at the end that we're to encourage one another with. The clear knowledge of what the last day will be then fills out the whole story. So you see, his first concern is there might be some people who, that we who are left behind are going to go ahead of our neighbors and maybe they'll be left in the tombs, right? Maybe it was a mistake that the Lord didn't come back in time to save the people who have already died in the first century. I suppose that could be a real concern. But Paul says, no, in fact, there's a pride of place given to those who have died. They're going to directly follow Christ Jesus by being raised from the dead. And then we also, who are still alive, will will follow them as well into the resurrection. Notice then how the kind of chronology, which has become such a controverted issue in America, especially and in the Protestant church, notice the chronology here. Here's how the end of the world comes. Jesus returns once. He returns not multiple times, and it's not secret at all. It's not a secret rapture, snatching away of people into eternal life or into heaven. He comes with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God that nobody can ignore, and he raises the dead. So that means all the people who are in the graves, notice all people, period, will be raised. But here he says in particular, we want to care about those who are in Christ. The dead in Christ will not be abandoned. They will be raised from the dead. And then we who are left behind, I think this is great, since that's become a well-known term for those who believe in the rapture. Those who teach about a rapture believe that some people are left behind because they're not Christians. So the Lord comes and secretly, without any trumpets, steals away the Christians and then leaves behind a bunch of unbelievers to give them a second chance. That's not what's taught here at all. In fact, the phrase left behind is those who are alive, who who didn't die before Christ Jesus returned. They're going to be brought with him too. We can go to other places in the scriptures where Paul talks about being changed in a moment of an eye, being changed from one life into another, from this mortal body into that immortal body like that of Christ Jesus our Lord. Some have talked about this as a resurrection, not of the dead, but of the living, that will be raised to our new life without going through the process of death. That's marvelous, and uh, uh, we'll see what that looks like at the last day. In any case, the clouds and the air are mentioned here. Uh, Why are we all floating up in the air? Well, it should be seen, especially in connection with the ascension, where Jesus was taken out of sight, hidden from our eyes by a cloud, so he also is returning in this fashion. And the emphasis here is not on being uh, ethereal. It's not on being up in the air. It's on being in all places with the Lord. That, if I could maybe uh, contradict what I said earlier, that is also part of the comforting words that we're encouraging one another with, that we're always going to be with him. We have been with him in faith now. Those who die remain with him, as he said to the the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. What is most certain about the life after death or about those who have died and have not yet come to the last day and the resurrection of all flesh is that they are with Jesus. That's certain. That is what we call heaven. And the great comfort is that whether we have died early or whether we are still around when Jesus returns for judgment, the result of it is going to be we're going to be with him. We're going to be together with him forever. 
And that's what's very comforting. These are the very words that end Matthew's gospel too, I might add. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer. Thanks to our good friends at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Dearborn, Michigan, for recently renewing their congregational sponsorship. In addition to supporting this worldwide outreach, Issues Etc. sponsorship includes the promotion of your confessional Lutheran church on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. For more information, look for a one-page informational flyer on the support donate page at issuesetc.org or give us a call, 618-223-8385. Don't wait. Most churches are planning their budgets in the next month for 2024. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor next year when we come back the gradual and the verse for this coming Sunday. Right now, many churches are planning their budgets for the next fiscal year. You can promote your confessional Lutheran church and support the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. by becoming a congregational sponsor. When your church pledges $1,000, we'll publicize your congregation on the podcast, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. journal. Learn more on the support donate page at issuesetc.org. Don't miss your congregation's budget deadline. Become an Issues Etc. congregational sponsor. The Christian religion is not like a buffet line, a modern smorgasbord of beliefs offering a wide range of tempting choices. Rather, it is the good deposit handed down to us in the scriptures through the history of the church that we might believe and confess who Jesus Christ is. To learn more about pick and choose religion, pick up your copy of the November issue of The Lutheran Witness. To subscribe, visit cph.org witness or learn more at our website witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Sanctifying your exercise routine with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. on this Thursday, November the 9th. Pastor Sean Denzer is leading us through the propers for this coming Sunday according to the three-year lectionary. Sean, what are the gradual and verse? 
We continue our kind of All Saints Tide. Uh, the afterglow continues, and I think it's especially appropriate uh, after hearing this epistle. These are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Another verse from Psalm 84, our intro. This is heard really well after that epistle, reminding us not only of our future in Christ, but also comforting us that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. His holy ones include those who have died. They've come out of their tribulation. We with them will also come out, and it's all by virtue of the death of Christ Jesus, his blood, but also of his resurrection and life. Our verse, then, is kind of the moral of the story, if you will, or the key verse from Matthew 25, our gospel today. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Speaking about the day when the Lord will return to judge the world. And with an emphasis not on fear, not on misunderstanding or or confounded confusion, but an emphasis on keeping your eyes open, paying attention, wanting to, in fact, see Jesus Christ and and receive him and and know that he has come is then something we are going to look forward to if we can move through and past Amos and his warning. Uh, Now we're going to talk about what is right, which is to look in faith and to live in love, uh, but always mindful and watchful for the Lord's coming because he is going to return at any time and that is going to be far better. The Gospel reading is Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Take us through it. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And all those virgin rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Many have spoken about this, and since it's so common among the lectionaries, I think it's a very familiar reading. Maybe still a puzzle kind of for those who preach on it and for those who hear it, because it it has so many details that we really love to kind of label. We know that's how the Lord treats the parable of the sower, for example, that he explains in detail. And he labels the seed and the crows and the roots that choke out, etc. So you'd love to really figure out what the lamps are, what the oil represents. What does it mean that they all fall asleep and yet only some of them stay? Be tempted especially to call the oil hope or, or faith, something that we'd be glad to share with others. So it's very strange that the wise virgins won't share it. I do think the best way to see the point of this is to start from the end, maybe. The moral of the story, as I've called it, a little tongue-in-cheek, the command that comes out of this, the warning is, watch and be prepared always, because you don't know the day or the hour. You can't plan ahead in that sort of set-it-and-forget-it way. And what do we learn, then, about the two 
categories, the two bins of virgins here. The first are the foolish, and they have lost their hope. They despair when they find that they wake up, startled maybe, and their lamps are going out. They have to look somewhere else. And they don't redouble their efforts, really. They run off. They don't stay at their post. They don't stay and watch. They go off, and as if Murphy's Law has kicked in, as soon as they leave, then the waiter comes with the food. As soon as they leave, then the bridegroom comes and they miss it. The foolish, on the other hand, are prepared. That's something to notice as well. But when the time comes, even when they've fallen asleep on the watch, which in all militaries and all situations is not really a good thing, they stand firm. They stay there. They have their singular focus. We want to be here when the bridegroom comes. We can't afford to go. We're so singularly focused on it, we can't afford to have our lamps go out either. We're going to stay at all costs. And that is, that is, I think, what is focused on since the conclusion is watch. You don't know the day or the hour. Keep watching. Don't ever stop that. We want to be known by him. We want to be there when he's here. The Christian outlook then is not so simple as just we're about to get out of this life. That means we don't have to worry about this life. It's also not the same as the Lord may be delayed, so we have to just take care of it now on our own and forget about the fact that he might come at any moment. Rather, both things are held together. We are interested in preparation. We are interested in long-term thinking. We don't want to do anything quick and silly and bank on the fact that this will just be an easy, quick trip. So I think there's an endurance aspect that is promoted here by this. Likewise, though, our apocalypticism is not to fall away as if we are citizens of this age, as if instead of maybe uh, bringing extra oil for our lamps, we should install a permanent fixture. We should get a generator going. We should make it a perpetual wind machine and make sure that that light is always on. You know, if that were the case, we probably could even walk away and do something else because if the bridegroom comes, he'll be able to get in. Maybe we can set up some kind of alarm system so we can know. That is not the attitude of constant watchfulness that is advocated here. And the watchfulness then is going to help us answer that question from before. What does it mean to look forward to the last day and look forward to the return of Christ? It means to be eager to have him, to expect that day at all times. And then the preparation for this world is not contrary to that expectation. What would you say about the hymn of the day, 516? I think it's worth taking a moment to look through this hymn. This is one of the great ones from Philip Nikolai. Uh, it has the name of the king of the chorales among us, and it certainly is a, a rousing tune and a beautiful image. But what is so marvelous and, and maybe surprising about it is it doesn't really seem to approximate the tenor of the text. It does have the watchfulness, but it's not full of judgment and fear. It's rather trying to express the heart of the wise virgins and to include us in that so that we will have the right attitude, that we will not lose hope and despair, but rather have great joy and see that our Lord's coming is by no means fearful, but is worth being there. If I could just go back to our intro for a second, right? He's the one who bestows honor on those who are found loyal and waiting for him. 
He's also the one who bestows his favor and his steadfast love that forgives sins, that welcomes all who are waiting for his return in, not on their own merits, uh, but because of his steadfast love. That is the only thing that produces steadfast love and endurance in us. So the hymn paraphrases and kind of puts the scene painted for us about uh, people, the watchman calls, we want to awake, here come the voices, and they call us to rejoice. If you're a wise virgin, wake up. And why? Because our bridegroom Christ Jesus comes. So we want to be prepared to meet him. He's going to be near at any day. And notice then we switch to the bride, really more than the bride maids, and we hear the voice of Jerusalem, the church, which is us, speaking fantastically, I suppose, as if to her husband, Christ Jesus. So here we have now the scene of the morning of the wedding, and the church is awaking and arising from all of the gloom of this world to have the day that she has awaited at last. The Lord coming down in the vision from Revelation, strong, he's the Lamb of God, he's the one uh, who comes in truth, the one who is robed in it. He's the one that she has been waiting for. And then we have a bit of a dialogue. Come, blessed one, Lord Jesus, God's own son. Hail, Hosanna. We're reminded of Psalm 118, which we're used to connected with Palm Sunday. But here we see blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord at the last day also, not to redeem the world by his death, but to proclaim his judgment and to bring his holy ones into his eternal wedding banquet. And uh, as many have noted in the second stanza, there's there's a combination here going on, a, a wonderful juxtaposition that uh, is definitely on purpose between the supper which might mean that eternal wedding banquet that's mentioned so often in the Gospels, but it could just as easily be the supper that we receive even now, as one of our prayers says, as a foretaste of that eternal wedding banquet. We are looking forward to eternal life and eating and drinking in the presence of the Lamb, well, and that Lamb gives us his body and blood even now in his sacrament. The last stanza is just an overabundance of joy, which certainly will be the case at the last day. We're kind of glimpsing eternal life with saints and angels. We have that image of the holy city as if each gate is carved from a single pearl, how big those oysters must have been, and we will join with them around his throne. Uh, and then we speak all these mysterious things. I, I really love bringing this passage in that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, but at that day, that won't be true anymore. Our eyes and our ears will see and hear Christ, behold him as we ourselves are, and enter into his eternal praise and glory forever. In some ways, it doesn't match exactly with the tone of the readings that we've had. And if I were to pick one, I'd say it probably matches best with the epistle. But it does help to undergird the why of our watchfulness, and the certainty of faith that is certainly a hallmark in Lutheran theology, that as Jesus himself says, when you see all of the terrible things of the last day coming, those who know Christ Jesus actually straighten up their heads and are delighted because they know that their redemption is drawing near. This then is what leads us to be eager and watchful at all times. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you. You're welcome. When we return in Hour 2 of Issues Etc. on this Thursday afternoon, Dr. Alfonso Espinosa joins us. He's author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November 
Faith That Shines in the Culture. We'll begin a conversation on Christian sanctification in the family, the state, and the church. And we'll have to get into the three estates. That's the family, the state, and the church, and how our sanctification takes place precisely there. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay tuned. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, cross-focused ministry of Issues Etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to eighth grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road, Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways.